Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, August 31st. We begin with a look at the current situation in Afghanistan, specifically what Canada's role will be moving forward now that our rescue mission is over and American troops have left the region. We discuss with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Next, we meet a Calgary doctor who's just been awarded a prestigious award for his reimagining of a standard hospital ventilator, which expands its use from just one patient to four. We speak with Dr. Stephen Roy about his invention and get his thoughts on winning the IDEA Award, which in the past has been won by major tech giants like Apple and Tesla. It's International Overdose Awareness Day. We hear the gripping personal story of Venetia Bro, a recovered addict whose family has been rocked by the opioid crisis. We hear how two of Venetia's sons are currently living on the streets addicted and get her thoughts on what needs to be done by government to help battle the growing crisis. And finally, our travel lady is on assignment. We catch up with Leslie Cater, who is currently on the high seas. We hear what it's like to be on a cruise ship for the first time in two years. We speak with Leslie from her cabin on a seaborne cruise ship off the coast of Barbados. Turmoil continues in Afghanistan. And will our nation help? What will our role be? Also, there's a lot of anger on the campaign trail. Those are some of the biggest issues tackled this week on the West Block. We're joined now by host and Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief Mercedes Stevenson. Good morning to you, Mercedes. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, Thank you for taking the time with us. We'll get to the election and uh, uh, things heating up around the Justin Trudeau camp in a second. But first, the the happenings in Afghanistan. It makes us think with hearing that the last American soldiers pulled out yesterday and and, uh, our troops are now out of the region. What, if anything, can we do as a nation to help that nation in turmoil? Well, that's a great question. And it's one that a lot of Canadians think are asking themselves because there is um, an unusually strong emotional connection, I think, for a lot of Canadians to Afghanistan because we lost people there. Mm-hmm. Um, we lost a, a lot of Canadians who, who fought and died and even more who came home. And, you know, we, we all know veterans. We know people who've served there it changes you. Um, and it's very, very difficult in some cases for the families and for those individuals. So to see this happening after that kind of investment uh, of people's whole being is very, very hard for a lot of folks. And, and they're wanting to help those who put their lives on the line by helping us. And we promised them that we would protect them. And now we don't know how many, but we know likely thousands are still there. Um, the government won't officially release the numbers of how many Canadians are still in the country either, but we know there are also Canadians who are there who are afraid for their lives. Um, and at this point, you know, I've talked to the foreign affairs minister and I asked him sort of what concrete things are you doing for people there now? Because the government's talking about processing paperwork. They're talking about uh, people getting to third countries. Well, I'm hearing from people who are on the ground and they're saying, that's great, but I'm not hearing anything from the Canadian government. Even if my paperwork is processed, I have no way to get out. I left Kandahar. Many of these um, translators are from Kandahar because that's where Canada was. They've gone to another province in Kabul. So, you know, think about if you picked up all your stuff and went to Vancouver, right? Now you don't have any of your stuff. You don't have any of your money. And someone says, okay, well, now you have to get to the U.S. Okay, 
how do you do that mm-hmm. when you don't have any means to do so? Um, and there's actually Canadian veterans groups that are raising money. Some of these guys are and girls are selling off their motorcycles. They're selling off personal objects, personal things of value to be able to send money to their former interpreters to pay for them to stay in safe houses. Um, one veteran who I was talking to, Special Forces, um, bought his interpreter diapers and baby cream. Um, I mean, this is where it's kind of at that you have individuals stepping into this gap that the government is trying to catch up and fill. And I did ask the Foreign Affairs Minister whether the government might give some money to these veterans groups um, to, to help them with the cost of what right now they are shouldering completely on their own to keep these interpreters safe and alive as long as possible till they can find another way to try to get them out of the country. Uh, he said he didn't have an answer with that, but essentially they, they were willing to take a look at it. In the meantime, he said they're negotiating with the Taliban, which a lot of people don't like to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that negotiation is a hope they will actually be able to get Canadians and interpreters out of Afghanistan alive. Um, the problem is, well, there's a very low uh, incentive for the Taliban to go after a Canadian citizen. There's a much higher incentive for them um, to go after these interpreters who they see as being traitors who work for the West. So it's, it's the challenge of giving names to get people out. But if, if you start giving those names, um, they're also going to know exactly who you have and haven't gotten out. So trying to find safe passage for them, whether it's on buses or whatever else, to try to either get them out of the airport if it reopens under Qatar or Turkey, two countries that are trying to reopen the airspace, uh, on civilian flights, or to put them on buses or something and try to run them out across the border through Pakistan or somewhere else. But a lot of those borders are closed, too, right now. So it's a pretty challenging situation. Mercedes, are we the only country where we have interpreters, etc., who we were weren't able to get out. I, I guess what I'm asking is: it, Is it fair the criticism that the you know the, the Justin Trudeau and the Liberal government is taking right now in terms of not getting these people out earlier or staying later to get them out? I think that there's two parts to the answer. Part one would be: This is all Western countries. Uh, I don't think anybody got everybody who they wanted to get out out. Uh, it was a complicated operation. Um, Western governments who moved slowly, um, they keep talking about not knowing that the, you know, the country was going to fall so quickly to the Taliban. That is true. However, three months ago, we could already tell those intelligence assessments were off because things were falling too quickly. Uh, and there have been years to bring interpreters to here uh, in Canada and to other Western countries. Western countries have made it very, very difficult for these interpreters to immigrate. Um, they have required all kinds of very difficult paperwork, paperwork the government of Afghanistan sometimes wasn't willing to give, things like passports. Sports. Um, and so we've been pretty slow because there was no urgency in moving them. And that is absolutely the United States, the UK, France, Canada, all these countries. In terms of Canada's particular performance after the government fell, I think is another question. Yes, uh, did the people on the ground work around the clock to get people out? Absolutely. But we didn't run our first flight until the Thursday when the Americans started running flights on Monday and we left the next Thursday. So we left before others. We pulled our embassy out. Um, Other countries had their embassy working from the airport processing paperwork. So we ran into a situation where even where there was Canadian planes, there wasn't anybody on the ground who could process the paperwork to get people on the planes. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of questions about how this unfolded on a political and bureaucratic level in Canada that there is accountability on because we're talking about people's lives on the line. Would we ever have gotten everybody out? Doubtful. Could we have gotten more people out than we did? That's the question that I think the government has to answer. All right. Uh, you know, just before we let you go, do you have, can you stick around for two more minutes or can we get one more quick question for you right now? 
Sure, guys, go ahead. Oh, okay. I was going to ask you about, uh, you know, uh, Justin Trudeau uh, out in the West, and not uh, shocking, he doesn't have a lot of fans, perhaps, in Alberta. But what's going on in Ontario with Liberal leader Justin Trudeau? Uh, I find it quite shocking. I would have thought he'd have a, a much more smooth reception. Yeah, so I think you have to kind of um, sort out where he's at in the polls. And by the way, he's not doing great in Ontario at all. Um, his trend line is not good in the election. If you're a liberal at this point, that could change. Keep in mind, um, you know, in campaigns, two and a half weeks is like forever. Um, so he could turn this around. Not a good trend line. But what you're seeing at those protests is very particular. Um, they're very organized. We don't know exactly how they're doing this. Sometimes we see the same person at more than one. Um, the anger, the screaming, the images of, of um, you know, a party leader next to a noose. Some of these are not things that, you know, are representative of, of the larger anger that there may be against Trudeau or the larger discontent in people who aren't going to vote for him. So there's sort of this very small, vocal, loud group that is following the Liberals around to these public campaign stops that they're making. And then there's the larger voter discontent with people who, for some reason, are looking at Justin Trudeau and so far aren't seeing somebody who they want to vote back in. Um, that could all change. But I think we have to be careful when we talk about the people who are involved in those very particular, very aggressive protests uh, versus, for example, someone who we saw show up at the housing announcement who was yelling, well, you've had six years to do something. Yeah. Uh, it was a much more kind of normal protest that you expect to see. That said, these same people who are protesting Justin Trudeau right now, um, some of them have protested Doug Ford. Some have protested Jason Kenney. These are people who are unhappy with government regulations and pandemic handling. And that anger has actually crossed uh, party lines basically into whoever is in government. But we don't tend to talk about it in that level of depth. Um, we're still trying to get a sense, really, of who some of these people are that show up on the campaign trail. Um, some of them are not too keen to talk to the media, as you can imagine. They don't like the media. Uh, but we're really trying to get a sense of who it is and, and where it's coming from and why and how. Um, so it's certainly a, a different campaign trail in that sense. Typically, uh, campaigns, by the way, will try to avoid these. So far, the Trudeau campaign hasn't done that. They've said, you know what, we're going to continue on. We're not going to be pushed off of our message. Um, and, and that in itself is also creating controversy in Canadian mm -hmm. politics. Yeah, and I think that, that message from some of those people are so extreme that maybe it benefits him in the end. Uh, anyway, great conversation. Thank you, as always, for joining us, Mercedes. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Well, a Canadian company has won a prestigious IDEA award. As COVID numbers rise again, a Calgary ICU doctor has been awarded international acclaim for finding a way to use hospital ventilators more efficiently and for more patients. Joining us is that innovator, Dr. Stephen Roy. Good morning, doctor. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Congratulations, first of all. And to begin with, can you start by giving us a bit of an explanation of, of what exactly a ventilator does? We've been hearing that, that word throughout the pandemic, but what does it do? Basically, a ventilator breathes for a person who is uh, so sick that they cannot breathe on their own effectively. All right, so let's talk about how it works on one person. You, uh, you know, uh, one unit per person, you decided there could be a better way. So how does your system work to provide ventilators uh, to four people from that one? Basically, our device allows the, the ventilator to build pressure for four people and divide that, uh, that pressure between them in a way that allows the the. Uh, flow to become independent of each other and that allows the four people to both have um, 
have a ventilator breathe for them as well as uh, provides the some of the safety features that the ventilator normally has for one person and retains them uh, in a slightly modified way to allow the ventilator still to detect problems in the breathing circuit. Doctor, I'm sure this is not a, a MacGyver duct tape and a paper clip <laughs> kind of idea. So is it is the expense then or the lack thereof, I guess, worth it to be able to expand the use of a single ventilator? So the the cost of the device is uh, about, about uh, a thousandth of the cost of a, a ventilator. So um, though Though clearly a, a ventilator per person is ideal, in the setting of planning for a disaster or a, uh, you know other ventilator crises, it's it's a, a much lower expense and allows the the ventilators to be to be utilized um, when there are not very many other options. All right, so you've been recognized because, like you say, this is a kind of changes the game here taking one piece of equipment, spreading it to four different patients, uh, winning the prestigious IDEA Award. So tell us what the IDEA Award is and, and what it means to somebody like you to be recognized with it. Well, the IDEA Award is the International Design Excellence Award, and this is a, a very big award for uh, for me to be receiving. Uh, it is an award that uh, Apple received for the iPod and for the iPhone and Tesla received for its its uh, Model S car. So to be put in the same category as as these kinds of uh, very innovative companies is a huge honor and a, a huge boost to to our business. Wow, that is very very impressive. And you know, you talked about this adaption being a sort of a, a thousandth of what the ventilator costs. We should let people know in dollars and cents. A ventilator costs about seventy thousand dollars. This piece that you've created is about fifty dollars per patient. So it really, obviously, the recognition you're getting is well deserved. What does this mean moving forward? Do you see this then being something that'll be shared around the world in various countries, for example, that might not be able to afford ventilators? Yeah, we see it to be being used in kind of three different settings. The first is in countries like Canada when uh, planning for the unexpected, essentially. At the beginning of the pandemic in, in the United States, there there were thousands of ventilators that could not be used because they had not been maintained, even though they, they were in the, the storage in the stock for uh, the stockpile of emergency ventilators. They, they weren't ready to be used, and so they couldn't be. And so in places like Canada, where we have such a huge mass of land, um, having a lot of ventilators is good. But if they're in the wrong place when they're needed, then they can't be used. So we foresee the device being used in, in countries like Canada, um, like this in this kind of setting. In, in other countries, in developing countries where, where buying a ventilator is, is uh, such a prohibitive cost that the country may only be able to afford a couple, um, it's notable that there are a few countries in Africa, for example, where there are literally no ventilators or where there are only uh, a handful of ventilators in the entire country. So in these kinds of countries where buying another ventilator is is more or less impossible, um, this kind of device would really allow uh, a hospital system to, to better serve an influx of patients uh, in the setting of of a pandemic, and then finally, in in military or um, humanitarian relief 
settings, we we think this would be very helpful in uh, in a field hospital when when planning for uh, what ventilator supplies are needed for a healthcare response. So those are kind of the three situations or, or demographics that we see use, utilizing our product. Dr. Roy, thank you uh, so much for your time and congratulations on the, the prestigious IDEA Award. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Uh, people who would like to vote for us for the uh, People's Choice Award for IDEA can go to idea2021.vote. Look at you. I like Perfect. that. And we'll get as many people there as we can. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. That's Dr. Stephen Roy, a Calgary ICU doctor. Today is International Overdose Awareness Day. Now, we've seen the opioid crisis grow throughout the pandemic, but politicians don't seem to be talking about it much during this current election campaign. So what should we be asking of our leaders on this topic? We're going to chat and ask Venetia Bro. She is a mom of three who is a recovered addict herself, has two children currently living in addiction. And joining us now is Venetia, the founder of the Terminator Foundation. Hi, Venetia. How are you? Hi, good morning, Sue. How are you? Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us just a quick bit about your backstory? You and your daughter both recovered. Your boys, where are they at, though? Um, so I have, uh, I actually have four kids, and it was my it was my second oldest daughter, Eden. Yeah, that is uh, in long-term recovery now, as well as myself. And both my boys are still currently struggling. This past year has been a bit rough. Okay, for those, you know, not in your situation, for those, you know, who don't know a lot about opioids, Venetia, can you tell us about how easy it is to get your hands on opioids and, and ultimately how long it takes to get hooked on something like this? Um, well, I don't, I don't think there's one, um, you know, just one way to measure it. For There's not just one measuring stick for every single person. Um, and I, And I think that's really important to remember, too, that... Um, it is a very complex issue, um, and so, you know, how long it takes one person to become addicted compared to someone else's, it, it could be, you know, totally different time frames. So, but as far as how easy it is to get, uh, to, you know, to have access to it, it's it's a lot easier than I think, you know, as parents and as families and just you know as individuals than than what we realize like the it's you know it's not an issue there there's no it's it's easy it's easier it's easier than we'd like to think i'll put it that way scary thought for sure uh, venetia addiction is something most of us luckily enough don't know a lot about so when you're in addiction do you know you're an addict are your sons aware um i think at this stage of the game i i'd say yes they are i think they i think they sometimes still think that they can you know that certain certain drugs are are okay like they're you know like for for example marijuana like and especially now too with it being legalized and stuff like that it's it's um you know sort of like the same as what we see with alcohol right um now that it's legal and it's you know it's more socially acceptable and stuff like that it just it makes it easier to move that bar on what's acceptable use 
versus, you know, maybe I'm kind of crossing some lines here. It's just, it's just easier for those lines to get blurred. This is a crisis that is unfortunately, uh, you know, right in, in your backyard, Venetia. So I'm wondering from your position, what would you uh-huh. like to hear from politicians? We've got a, a federal election basically in, in weeks now. What needs to be done? Um, you know, it's, oh, man, it, there's there's um, this is a crisis like this. And this crisis hasn't gone away, even even with the. Uh, you know, COVID and stuff like that, you know, yes, obviously that's a crisis too, but th- this crisis has been here with us for a while now. And if anything, it, it has just amped up. It, it hasn't gotten better. It's gotten worse. And COVID has only heightened that. And I think, you know, one of the things I will say is that this past year, like I had to end up putting both my boys um into treatment they obviously they voluntarily had to go because they're both adults but this was the first time i know for me personally that i didn't have to pay for treatment and so you know one thing i will say in in having you know been in long-term recovery for a long time you know some of the inroads that have been made um for easier access you know to to the beds and stuff like that um came this this you know it was in the last 18 months with the the fees being removed removed off the beds and for someone like me that that is directly impacted normally i have to pay for treatment and that was the first time i didn't i wasn't having to scramble to come up for money to get my boys into treatment and so what needs to be done i honestly i think I think if for us just to leave this issue at the door of government, I think we that's naive and I think it's irresponsible on all on all of us. This is this is an issue that's going to take all of us, um, not just our government and not just what they're able to do, but all of, all of our all of the structures that are in place. You know, every every single person. This it this does impact. Uh, more people than than what we even realize like the the numbers are they're astronomical you know and and they are increasing it, and we're going to see the, an influx of that even more as we start to you know just even probably over this next year the mental health and and stuff that you know people that have been impacted by covid and you know the lockdown and and everyone's health and stuff like that it's it's uh <laughs> yeah it's it's still it's a, it's it's, a little bit scary. It is scary. scary. We've made some strides, obviously, is, is what you're saying. Much yeah. more work needs to be done. Thank you for yeah. your perspective. Always appreciate talking to you, Venetia. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Sue. Venetia Bro is the founder and CEO of the Terminator Foundation. They've got their big annual 5K for youth addiction awareness coming up September 25th. So TerminatorFoundation.com and OverdoseDay.com for more info. Different rules are in place to travel to different countries, but the travel industry is beginning to open up once again. So let's find out what cruising looks like. Live from a business trip on board a cruise ship near Antigua, we are joined this morning by the travel lady, Leslie Cater. Hi, Leslie. Hi, good morning, Sue. A business trip, eh? Okay, we'll keep it at that. Yep, I know you have to do your research. We appreciate it. Uh, Tell us what it's been like, Leslie, to fly internationally and then to get on a cruise ship once again. 
Mm-hmm. It, it was interesting. First of all, the preparation was extensive. Um, I checked and double-checked everything. You've got to assemble, obviously, your vaccination record. We don't have a certificate in Alberta now, so I got mine notarized from my local MLA. Um, and then, of course, you've got to have the COVID test, which has to be a PCR test. There were health and questionnaire forms I had to fill in for the cruise line Seabourn and also for Barbados, stressing that I was actually in transit for Barbados. Oh, here's the safety briefing. You can hear that going off in the background. (laughs) I'm sure you know how to stay safe on a ship. (laughs) Yes. So um, going forward with that, I apologize. They're doing cruise safety briefings here. Um, So getting into Barbados, um, first of all, the flight from Toronto to Barbados, I felt much better with doing that because I realized that most of the people on the flight were double vaccinated because that's a requirement going into Barbados. Mm. Um, so that was feeling pretty safe. But getting into Barbados as well, there's numerous checks there. We had to uh, go through, uh, show our vaccination certificate, uh, a few times show the health questionnaire we'd completed. Finally, we got on the transfer to the cruise port, but not before realizing that Air Canada had left our bags in Toronto. Oh, no. Now, I'm on a a business trip here, so I just can't do the week with my Lulu leggings (laughs) and my T-shirt that I was traveling in. So fortunately, I have travel insurance, which covers me for lost baggage. So I've had a little bit of a spend at the shop on board Seabourn. The peculiar situation is is that I can't go ashore to go shopping because everything is only with tours. You can't just pop off the ship and go and have a shop. So that was a bit of a a downer on that. But... uh, Seeing that we're on board now, we got onto the ship fine. We had to do a rapid antigen test outside of the ship on the port and sit there and wait 20 minutes while they uh, checked for the test. And we got the all clear. We were so happy. Mm-hmm. Got on board that ship and into our beautiful stateroom. And uh, there are only 98, I think 86 guests on board on a ship that normally accommodates 400 and we have um, just been so spoiled to death. There are 350 staff on board. Wow. Yeah, we had an amazing dinner last night. No masks required on the ship because everybody has been double vaccinated, double tested. But the staff serving us are still wearing masks. So to keep our situation good. Mm-hmm. Last night, I had dinner with the chief engineer, Mm -hmm. and he said since the beginning of COVID, he's been very busy. They've been outfitting all of the um, airflow on the ship. The only airflow is from outside, inside. There's no recycled air going from cabin to cabin. Uh, Brand new um, HEPA filters, ultraviolet um, uh, screening that the air has to go through. So the so changes, was, we got to leave it there for time, but the changes are present. They're doing the protocols, and uh, mm-hmm. we, we can't wait. We have to leave it there for time, but we can't wait to hear the end result in the next couple of weeks for sure, Leslie. Thank you so much oh, for yeah. the update.
Thank you for your time, guys. Check out my Facebook. I've got some videos there of my experience. Okay, Good great. stuff. She is Leslie Cater, the travel lady, <laughs> online at thetravellady.ca and on Facebook issues. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.